This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show for your Tuesday. Good to be with you today. Matt Patrick here. We got uh, Brett with Patrick Cooligan coming up here a little bit later on. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. Patrick, how are we today? Good. We're kind of enjoying this little late season warm burst. Well, we'll get another one in October. We always do mm-hmm. where it's yeah, it's definitely short sleeve weather uh, coming up here in October. So we'll we'll have that. Um, it does feel nice. I, I actually it was a hot. I mean, I was I went to a, a, a to a Target, and I was in the parking lot. I'm like, this feels hot. So yeah, just you know, keep in mind we're at that time of year. Although I am starting to notice more and more of the pretty fl- the pretty leaves. It's, yeah, it me is. Too. It must be the the drought here. That's kind of why we're so early, a little bit early. But mm-hmm. it's just uh, I've already got my plans. So doing the arboretum this weekend. Uh, I got tickets to the Guthrie, too. Uh, the importance of being earnest. Got that this weekend. Going to do that? All right. Got uh, the Arboretum this weekend. The weekend after that, the glory, the magnificence that is apple picking. I will be out there getting my my hoard of apples back. I say back, back. I will keep them myself. So are, when was the last time you went apple picking? I about, uh, I think it was my first year of college was okay. probably the last time. Okay. I I love it. It's one of my favorite things. I, mean, I think it has a lot to do with when I was a kid out in Rhode Island. And, you know, they just, it's, you know, it, you know, it, it, that's something you did a lot. You went out into, to, you know, Western Massachusetts or, you know, kind of up into the southern parts of New Hampshire and Vermont. There were apple orchards up there. And just as a kid, I just loved it. And so I did it with my kids. I'm going to do it every year. Plus the fact that I, I tell you is, is in the life's pleasures thing. We had the Aurora Borealis last night. Did you see some of the photos? Spectacular. Absolutely. Do you see the picture of the, the, there was a plane. Yep. Yeah. I saw the guy that was a photographer who was on a plane that took off from MSP and got a great overhead shot of it. Spectacular. And he clearly must've used a, del- a little bit of a delay on it because it was just really bright green. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Just spectacular. These are the little things that make Minnesota just a fantastic place to be. Uh, an apple, I, I can only hope the day I go out there, it's a cool morning, something like 42, 43 degrees, you know, not exactly hot, del- you know, perfect temperature. You pull an apple off a tree that's been sitting in the shade overnight, naturally refrigerated. If it's a sweet tango, mm, yeah, baby. That's like Lauren Boebert over at a, at a Beetlejuice. I got a lot just off of that. Um, <laughs> that's not going away. I'll start with that. I'll start with that because uh, there is a there's a little bit of an interesting uh, side note here. Lauren Bobert says she's back to work. <laughs> I think you were working it before there. Uh, after the nightmare nightmare date scene around the country, but her latest comments have raised uh, more questions than they've answered. All future date nights have been canceled, and I learned to check party affiliations before I go on a date. Said Bobert, jokingly told TMZ on Monday. 
Bobert and the date were kicked out of the Buell Theater in Denver on Sunday evening. Performance of Beetlejuice for their behavior. Let's base. I mean, for lack of a better way to say it, he got a solid double. You know, and he was thinking he rounded second. He was thinking about going for third. I mean, let's let's just kind of put it in perspective of how things were going that evening. For the, dun 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 dun. <laughs> That's a clutch hit right there. Clutch hit. Extra bases. Um. It basically, the complaints are coming from the other attendees and incident reports that the pair were vaping, singing along, recording the show, and generally causing a disturbance. This is backed up by security video that showed the couple getting handsy. And he'll stay with the second. He'll stay with the double. Bobert's comments about checking party affiliation seemed to imply that she had not known the man for very long, and TMZ inferred that the night in question was Bobert's first date with him. Wow. That's a... Uh, Okay. The man has been identified as Aspen, Colorado bar owner Quinn Gallagher. Gallagher is believed to be a Democrat, and the bar he co-owns has hosted multiple LGBTQ-friendly events, including a drag show. Bobert, meanwhile, has repeatedly pushed the false and dangerous Republican conspiracy theory that dairy queens are grooming children. So if all of this is true, this was, well, first date, hello. Um, if all this is true, there are some questions. If this was their first date, they seem very comfortable with each other. Hello there. <laughs> uh, let me tell you about my topographical map studies. Uh, sorry. 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 Uh, two, does Bobert vape near and then tell off a pregnant woman on all of her first dates? I Yeah, that's a little bit weird. How did their politics not come up beforehand? I mean, seriously, how do you as a sitting representative not – well – I, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I'm not giving Lauren Bobert enough credit. Well, I can't, I can't, I can't go. Maybe I'm not giving her enough credit. Maybe she really does kind of turn off the politics when it comes to her personal life. But then she turns something else on. <laughs> Sorry. Hello there. Uh, if Gallagher is a Democrat, why would then he go out on a date with Bobert? Well, I've got a theory, but no, I'm not going to go down that path. And why would she go on a date with him? That's, that's a little bit, the, the you know. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think there's more to this story. She's desperately trying to put this story behind her right now. She really is. She is desperately trying to put this story behind her because I think she knows that this is one of those stories which actually will hurt her pretty dramatically next year. You know, uh, you know. here she is. I mean, there's video footage of her. That's, I mean, you'll have to blur, by the way, Congrats to the Denver Theater. Those are some high-end night goggles you guys got there. Man, there's not much to the imagination. Um, the, you're going to have to blur those images if you use them. But I'm, I mean, if I'm running against her, I'm using it. And this, and then now all of a sudden, I mean, even becomes even weirder. You know, this was your first date. That's your first date. I mean, there. I, I, all right. It's it, there's more questions and concerns, but she clearly is very concerned about where this goes with her. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. We were talking about uh, being here, the majesty, the splendor that is Minnesota. Um, of course, we are we are once again pegged by a national outlet as a great place to be. Everyone, ready? Here we go. Every Republican, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, you just you, you you can get up and leave at any point. Seriously, why are you here? Off you go. Minneapolis is one of the 15 happiest places to live in the United States. That's according to Outside Magazine, whose researchers poured through a multitude of facts and figures to land on 15 towns and cities nationally 
with a testimonial sought from residents in each selected city. Minneapolis was among the cities selected, with the city scoring highly in its ample green space, which goes a long way towards healing and happiness, its extensive bike network, its history of being welcoming to immigrants in the LGBTQ plus community, its excellent hospitals, esteemed performing arts, and fantastic food. Check, 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 and check. Among the businesses and locations getting shout-outs uh, in the article is the James Beard Award-winning restaurant Awamni and the Minneapolis Farmer's Market. Early this year, the wider state of Minnesota was ranked as the fourth best state to live in and work in in the annual CNBC ranking, with the state vaulting up the list due to its efforts to protect access to reproductive health care amid restrictions in other states, as well as protections for the LGBTQ plus community. Outside acknowledges challenges facing the city, too, however, namely the 2021 murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer and the subsequent riots that followed with state and federal investigators subsequently uncovering evidence of discrimination and unlawful conduct within the MPD over the last decade. Over at least a decade, I should say. The debate over policing the city amid efforts to reform the department and the challenging representing the spike of crimes since the start of the pandemic remains ongoing. So heading over to Outside Magazine, which, by the way, I get I. You know, since I started walking, man, I'm outside a lot more, and I like it. It's a good uh, good residence here. So it, Minneapolis is the largest city that's represented here. Other cities are there. Cincinnati, New Orleans, um, Reno, Madison shows up on the list. But uh, of all the cities, by far, Minneapolis is the largest. So you're welcome, America. This is how you do it. Uh, if COVID taught Minneapolis residents anything, it's that the city's ample green space goes a long way towards healing and happiness. This year, Minneapolis vaulted to the number one spot in people for bikes annual large city rankings, moved up to number three in the Trust for Public Lands Park Score rankings. The city has 180 parks, many of which are connected by some 100 miles of off-street bikeways and trails that run along the Mississippi River and around a chain of lakes, the chain of lakes. Additionally, the 20-year neighborhood park plan has promised to commit $11 million annually through 2036 for maintenance, rehabilitation, and capital investments, especially in low-income neighborhoods. By the way, we, we don't talk enough about that. Can I tell you how many people I have coming up into Minneapolis and they get here and they're like, oh, is, that, is, there, a, is there a fee I have to – there's a park down the street here. Is there a fee I have to pay for it? No, it's, it's free. You can go use it. That park over there, yes. The one that's completely clean and well-maintained, yes. The one with all the, the play equipment, which is relatively new with at least the last five, ten years, yeah, you can go play there. There's no fee for it. Well, you pay taxes on it, but that's what we spend their taxes on. So that park is free, yes. And you'll suddenly say, it's like, is that not the case where you came from? And they'll look at you and say, of course not. The parks that they come from in, in states, the, the last time they put new equipment in there was the 1970s. They're not mowed. There's dog droppings everywhere. It's, it's not a safe place to be. Most of the equipment is broken. They haven't had a working swing in years. Like, off you go. Bon appetit. So good news there. People who are fundamentally happy here because there's an ethos of connecting to the outdoors, says Anthony Taylor, the equitable development lead for the nonprofit Cultural Wellness Center. The organization founded events like um, the uh, Melanin in Motion as a way to induce more people in uh, of color in to fat biking, Nordic skiing, and other outdoor activities. Another event, Slow Roll MSP, offers loner bikes and leads rides through diverse neighborhoods before ending with a meal cooked by a neighborhood chef using locally grown food. 
It's the work of access, says Taylor. It's how we're creating a sense of safety for people not normally in these outdoor spaces. Minneapolis has a long history of welcoming immigrants and those part of the LGBTQ plus community. Minnesota legalized gay marriage in 2013. And this year it was passed a shield tra- transgender health care preventing state courts and officials from complying with child removal requests, extraditions, arrests, and subpoenas related to gender affirming health care. In other fronts, there are excellent hospitals, esteemed performing arts, and fantastic food. The city's farmer's market was founded in 1876 and has since grown to become the largest farmer's market manage, farmer-managed market in the state with 170 stalls. Flowers out there, by the way, are really nice at this point. Many of the vendors among, and in 2021, Awamni, the restaurant named by, uh, by the, uh, the uh, chief, uh, Sean Sherman, uh, that serves modern indigenous food using only native ingredients, opened in the Waterworks Pavilion in the Mill Ruins Park along the Mississippi River a year later it won the Beard Award for Best New Restaurant. Um, so there you go. Lots of reasons why Minneapolis is amazing. And it's inevitable. It's inevitable. We're going to get it. Because once again... The only way Republicans can win, considering they have no platform, is to convince you that it's actually horrible. So I want to, you know, everyone breathe in deep. Take a quick moment here. All right. When you hear that Republican, family member, friend, neighbor, cousin, coworker, whatever the case may be, do they there are a few variations of this you can do with. I prefer to go with the screw you. Uh, that's that's uh, you know that's just me though. I'm I'm a, <laughs> I'm an aggressive jackass. Um, you just you could just go no, it's actually really nice here, and then watch them go yeah no no it's actually really nice here. Why why, why are you here? And as a matter of fact, that's what I want you to do. Why are you here if you hate it here so much? Why are you here? I mean, don't you want to be someplace where you want to be happy? Because you're clearly not happy here. So why are you here? Chop! That's what you're going to get. So um, once again, Minneapolis, St. Paul, kicking caboose. Fantastic. Just a, a pleasant place to be. And, yeah, it does have problems. We all have problems. Every city's got problems. Every city's got problems. Trust me. But we don't sit on the sidelines and tell the people, for the most part, you're on your own. We try to help people out. We try to make sure that they are taken care of. And it's it's a shame it took us so long as a population to – finally completely understand the the chaos that the African-American community has been going through and the Native American community for that matter in regards to the police brutality. But I think we all have done that. We're, this is done. That's the Department of Justice has even come down and pointed out how bad it had been so that things are going to change. And the reality is, is when you look at the litany of things that the DFL just did, that's only going to make Minneapolis-St. Paul a better place to live. And that's not just Minneapolis and St. Paul. That's the suburbs, too. And speaking of which, when we come back, I want to take a break, come back. When I do come on back, I want to get into this Minnetonka carjacking story because 
you know, I, it, it is a tragedy what's happened to the, the, this, this family that, that, that where this happened. But because we seem to be losing focus here, I, I think there are people involved with this that are turn, trying to turn this into a political thing. And I want to get to that here. Not saying that we shouldn't address the crime issue. It just is, is your concern the crime issue and the failures or is your concern trying to go after Mary Moriarty, who, for the record, I haven't exactly been the most complimentary to myself. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. So there's there's a it, – it would be fantastic if we as a society ever lived in a crime-free world. It, it really would be nice. That just doesn't exist. It's never really existed. Um, you know, it's interesting when I'll talk to and – I've, and I've talked about this numerous times. You'll go to the south and you'll talk about – you'll talk to white, the white southerners and they'll talk about, well, the good old days of the 50s. Well, it wasn't so good for the, the black people and you, they, they get incensed you bring that up. Well, you know, they, they, had their, they had their problems, but I mean, it didn't, it didn't take away from this. Well, yeah, if so if you created a racist culture that, you know, basically prevented, you know, certain people from having any, having, ever having a chance of getting ahead in life and were kept as, you know, basically, even though slavery was illegal, but kept with low wages and lower income areas and the only opportunities they had were basically to be able to, you know, work for you. Uh, at a less than than livable wage, well, sure, I guess for you it was great. It wasn't great for them, and and you know, kind of things. I mean, and there's always been times. I mean, there was a fantastic Daily Show segment about that where they sent their correspondents out and said, "When exactly? When you say talk about the good old days? When do you talk about the good old days?" And they every time they brought up a decade, they bring up all the bad things that happened in a decade, and they well, not that stuff. Cities by nature, have, you know, crime. And sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's not as bad. If you want to look at us and act like we're the worst state in the nation, you haven't been to Shreveport, you haven't been to Baltimore, you haven't been to Detroit. There are a lot, you haven't gone to Fresno. There's, there's, there's a lot of really bad places right now in this country where crime is really atrocious. I mean, just really atrocious where they're they're just kind of in, for lack of a better way to say it, not safe to go there. You have to when whenever you talk about a crime, there's two ways to discuss it. There's always the 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 micro and the macro. The micro looks at it from the very the very you know closest point of view, which is. Someone was attacked. Someone was robbed. Someone was beaten. Someone was murdered. And obviously, we, when we discuss that, can feel empathy and sadness and compassion and caring for that individual. They sure didn't deserve that, not in any capacity. But then there's also the macro way of looking at it and looking at it in the case in the case of carjackings. There have been a total of five, five total carjackings. In Minnetonka, in the last three years, total of five. That's hardly any. And you got Ridgedale in there. I'm going to guess most of them taking place over there, although this one case that we're about to discuss did not. 
there are crimes and it doesn't demean or dismiss or negate the feelings of betrayal, fear, anger, scared of the victims. By all means, we need to make sure we get a good support system in there to take care of those people and make sure they're there. Part of that is making sure we have a judicial system and a legal system that actually hands out appropriate punishments for the crime, not locking them up for the rest of their lives to be beaten every hour and 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 not fed for, for, you, know, you know but once every three days. No, that's that's not what we should be doing. But at the same time, they deserve some jail time. And this is where I mentioned earlier, I've, I've not exactly been the biggest supporter of Mary Moriarty. When those two teenagers murdered that woman, the idea of giving them juvie for a year and a half, then home with Netflix and DoorDash for two years really was insulting. It's insulting to the family. It's insulting to the community. It was insulting. And I don't want to hear about, well, they were just, they were just you know, ploys for a, another adult and you know this no they, they were the trigger men in a murder they deserve something more than like i said 18 months and then doordash and netflix the stories i'm going to read from are from care 11 the first one was yesterday and this actually puts a lot of perspective into what exactly happened here One month has passed since the violent carjacking happened in a family's driveway in Minnetonka. The family is now encouraging residents to attend Monday's Minnetonka City Council meeting to share their concerns. That was Monday last night. This is the first time I read this was yesterday. Last week, a Hennepin County Attorney's Office charged Ramel Rochode Lewis, 21, with first-degree carjacking, burglary, and robbery. According to the Minnetonka Police Department, Lewis is wanted in a series of metro area burglaries and car thefts. So, yes, scumbag. This is a significant development in a string of cases that took place across the Twin Cities in recent weeks, said Captain Andy Gardner in a press release. This is the first case in Hennepin County making the use of a new law that calls for more serious charges for violent offenders and carjackings. All right. A warrant has been issued for his arrest. As you can imagine, it's a pretty traumatic event when you have people coming to your yard in the middle of the day and attack a little boy and his mother. So there's a lot of trauma going on with that, said Craig Beeson. Beeson's wife and 13-year-old were the victims of the carjacking on the morning of August 17th. Once again, the first carjacking of the year in Minnetonka, uh, the fifth in three years. Um, but, you know, once again, it's the micro and the macro. We can look at this and clearly feel sorry for the victims. But I'll look at it in the macro. How about the, the victims of this other guy that basically are plowed over? I mean, this guy sounds like he's had a, a litany of crimes and there doesn't seem – my guess is going to be these are you know Minneapolis or St. Paul carjackings, and there doesn't seem to be any concern about those victims as we go through this story. And I think that we can look at this, like I said, in both directions, and we have to look at this in both directions. And once again, I feel sorry for this family because this, this is horrible. Um, they just returned home from grocery shopping at 10.50 in the morning. While carrying groceries in the home, Beeson's wife looked out the window and observed a grayish sedan – occupied by multiple males, pull up in front of her home. When she exited her home to the attached garage, she had noticed that one man in the driver's seat of the husband's vehicle in the garage. The man wasn't able to start the car in the garage and ran back to the suspect's vehicle. When she went to confront him, the complaint says the two men, other men, then attacked her. When the 13-year-old son tried calling the police, one of the men started dragging the teen while trying to take the phone but was unable to overpower him. According to the complaint, the son sustained scrapes and his body suffered physical pain during the attack. The four suspects then sped off with the suspect sedan and the victim's vehicle. So I'm going to extend the victim with the – this was the vehicle that had the groceries in it. Horrible. 
you know, it's it's as I can say this as a person that when I got hit by the drunk driver, I'm glad this was not more serious. I mean, I don't want to just downplay this. I, I but you know, this stuff like this happens, and all of a sudden you get some you know idiot kid that doesn't know what the heck they're doing, and they got a gun, and the next thing you know, it's a, a much larger tragedy. I can't tell you how glad I am that the wife and the son are alive. Some scrapes and some bruises, definitely some mental trauma, clearly. All our best. And like I said, get them the help they need, by all means. They tried to run them over when they left the driveway. They went down to a dead-end street, turned around, then tried to run them over again. Both of them, Beeson said that the family called the police. Officers intercepted the fleeing vehicles and began pursuit. The complaint said the officers ended the pursuit due to concerns for public safety. So basically they were going so fast that they didn't want them to plow into another vehicle and possibly kill someone else as they tried to flee. About a half an hour after the incident, officers were able to track the family's vehicle to a Walgreens in a Edina. So I'm going to guess that's the Walgreens off of York. I think that's over there off of York. There's also one up off Vernon and 100 up by Jerry's. Oh, that's right. So it's one of the two. I'm going to guess off of York. I'm going to guess off of York. Edina and Minnetonka officers observed several males standing around the two vehicles in the parking lot, but they fled before officers were able to make contact with them. So they witnessed them, and then they fled. Beeson said he understood why the pursuit was called off, but added, to not arrest them when they had the chance to arrest them. I don't understand that. They just watched them get into the stolen vehicle and leave. Now, once again, so it's very clear here what Beeson is upset about is, wait a second here, the police seem to have dropped the ball. That the Walgreens thing, they were there, they saw them, they didn't immediately get out there and pull every police car they had and, and shut it down. And yeah, they, they probably should have. I'm not going to deny that. I don't know if they were waiting for backup. I don't know what the case may have been, but clearly. According to the city, um, uh, Beeson said it's extremely frustrating to see that this went on. This long before charges were even brought forth, and now only one of the four has been brought forth. According to the city of Minnetonka, this is the first carjacking of 2023. There have been fewer than five carjackings in the city for the past three years. Now, that was yesterday's story. And clearly, once again, horrible incident. Some, you know, Like I said, thank God the, the mother and the kid are okay. Thank goodness for that. Get them the help they need. And obviously, mental health care for them, that's obviously a very traumatic thing. But they can recover from this. Um, cars can be replaced. Lives can't. That's the important thing. And that's I'm very glad that they that, that, that some, outside of some bumps and bruises, there's nothing extremely physically that was damaged per se. They, they, did, they did escape and then they escaped again with the police. Now, when I come back, I want to talk about what happened last night because it seems to be changing a little bit what the attention is supposed to be here. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show, 952-946-6205. So we heard the story of what happened out in Minnetonka, a tragedy, individual. There rarely does happen out there in Minnetonka, but it did happen. Police basically, uh, out of safety concerns, stopped the pursuit, but then found the suspects at a Walgreens and a Dina, but for some reason did not make the arrest or at least attempt to make the arrest. They're, they could have clearly tried to drive over curbs and stuff like that to get away. So that seems to be the problem here. So let's go to last night. And this is Beeson again. He's, he's standing up in Minnetonka 
The reason I'm here is because we're tired of this. We're tired of the crime beast and sit at the podium. I want to know what we can do to invoke change. How can we change this? All right, I want to stop you right there. I understand that you are looking at this from a very micro point of view, that this is what's happened to you. And once again, if if it's not come clear in this discussion, I feel very sorry for you and your family. They shouldn't have had to go through this. This is very difficult. I can understand your frustration. But I also know what the number five means. This is a line I get from someone who was on the Nextdoor app. Because if you haven't been on Nextdoor, uh, it's it's basically where old people go to complain about crime that just doesn't exist anywhere but inside their old minds. I don't go there often. I rarely go there because it is just infuriating to go there and see your own neighbors talking about, the other day I saw some kids, they might have been minorities, the crime rate's out of control, that sort of thing. The gangbangers control my neighborhood. What are you talking about? You know. No, I, no, they don't. I mean, it's it's the same thing that's always existed. I remember when I bought my house in Hopkins, a friend of mine said to me, oh, Matt, you can't move to Hopkins. It's the barrio. What? Okay. Really? Uh People, the same people as I talked about with the outs, out, outdoor, uh, the outside magazine ranking in Minneapolis as the one of the top fifteen happiest cities in the in the country. Those people that like to sit there and scream, they see a very different world. This, these are the people that anytime they see a minority, they're calling the police, or they're writing it down. Black man walking by my house. Time and date. They see a car in the neighborhood they don't recognize. They, they're getting the license plate and stuff like that. That's, that's what this is. And then they're always authorities. Always authorities on things. It's, it's basically, like I said, it's, it's – this is – you know the Nextdoor app is where Republicans go to basically feed this machine of irrational thought processes that everything is going crazy. When I read this line from Beeson, the reason I'm here is because we're tired of this. We're tired of the crime. Once again, crime happened to you. It's very personal. I also know that that was the first carjacking that happened in Minnetonka, a city of, I think it's 45 to 50. Do me a favor, Patrick. Can you find the population of Minnetonka really quick for me? That's about 53,000. 53,000. Thank you. A town of 53,000. You had your first carjacking in August. It's not a crime haven. You're speaking, by the way, at the Minnetonka City Council. So you're not talking like at the, you know, at the Hennepin County meeting or, you know, over at the state capitol. You're talking at Minnetonka. So clearly the implication is the Minnetonka crime is something here. We're tired of this. We're tired of the crime. I want to know what I can do to invoke change. How can we change this? That started raising my hairs when I read that. I'm like, okay, this is this is not. Once again, I'm going to give him some leeway with that first statement because it is personal for him. 
Before the meeting, Beeson said he intended his message for the elected officials and specifically Hennepin County Attorney Mary Moriarty because that's where I believe it's broken. Now, I want to stop you, Mr. Beeson, right there. This is where you're making it political. The incident that you had the day before, the CARE 11 story the day before, your frustration was clearly with the police departments that did not arrest them when they had the chance, at least in your mind. And once again, that is – I got to be very careful here. That is a very one-sided argument of what happened there with that Walgreens. But the implication from Beeson is they were just sitting outside, police saw them, didn't go up and arrest them, had the chance, and then they drove off, and that was that. That's not Mary Moriarty. And once again, I want to be very clear. I am not the biggest supporter of Mary Moriarty. I am not carrying her water at all. I think that she is definitely probably a one-term Hennepin County attorney at this point. I don't see how... I knew we all said the same thing. We understood that there had to be change, that there was clearly racial issues within the prosecutorial arm of Hennepin County, but no one was talking about letting, you know, gunmen go or at least, you know, minimal sentences and they'll learn their lesson and apparently we'll have a drum circle. I had, no, not, that's that was not part of the deal. But so the fact that in, in just from, from the first time the CARE 11 story ran to where you were like upset with the police to now this, I want to make sure we understand who this is directed exactly at. Mary Moriarty. All right. I get it. This has become political. And I have zero doubt you're probably being encouraged by Republicans who are like, yeah, the cr- crime's out of control. I was on, on, on next door. My crime's out of control. No, it's not. But. You're looking for a target. In the August 17th Minnetonka case, Moriarty's office has charged 21-year-old Romile Lewis with first-degree carjacking, which is once again what you want. The first such case charged under Minnesota's new stiffened carjacking laws. Once again, also what you want. So we have the charge from Moriarty's office. We have the stricter penalties, which she is – it's not like she's saying, I'm not going to follow those rules. I'm going to make up my own rules. She's, she's following the law as it's been dictated. What exactly is Mary Moriarty doing again here? She said charges against second suspect involved are pending, but after police forwarded her the case on Friday. So once again, last Friday, the police forwarded their the case. I understand you wish the world right now because you're angry about what happened to you, Mr. Beeson, was like Judge Dredd, that someone could just drive up to someone, find these people, and say guilty and blow them away. I get it. You're angry and frustrated. I'm not going to basically try to negate you from your justifiable frustration. Now, I would I disagree with that, you know, you know, an extreme penalty like that for sure. But you want immediate justice. Why aren't these people in stocks in the town square getting ready to be thrown away and, and enjoy a jail cell in the Arctic with the, with the key being thrown away and we don't care anymore? I, you know, I get it. You, you want that kind of justice. But once again, she's charged the first guy. She's followed the law that basically says here's the law. Here's how you have to charge him. So she's doing her job. And she said, since the police forwarded the second case, she is expecting charges against that second pay, that second person pretty quickly. There are two really strong reasons that stood out here. We learned that this is part of a broader, more sophisticated kind of car theft ring targeting high-end cars, not just impulsive. We see a car, we're going to take it, Moriarty said in an interview with CARE 11. 
Also, the assault of the 13-year-old boy. Moriarty has responded to the criticism, some of which has surfaced in the Minnetonka Council meeting on Monday night, of course, because it became political, that her office has not been aggressive enough in prosecuting carjackings or violent crimes involving young adults and juveniles. In response, she said that less than 2% of cases involving stolen cars in Hennepin County are submitted to her office due to the difficulty of investigating the crimes. So once again, she can't just roll down the street as Judge Dredd and start administering justice. She can't do that. She has to get a court case from the police and basically, you know, the difficulty of investigating the crimes makes it to where only less than 2%. The problem here seems to not be with Moriarty's office. And once again, I'm saying this as a person that has been critical of her. And her relatively soft-handed approach. But in this case, she's already saw, you know, charged one person, getting ready to charge a second person. And she's following the state guidelines, which were enforced to make sure that these crimes are charged correctly. What exactly do you want Moriarty to do more now? Do you want her to be a Judge Dredd running down the street and just, you know, instant justice? Because I don't think that that's what her job is. Like I said, it's a shame that this is becoming political, but it's clear that it is becoming political. Not because it is political, because the problem is something you pointed out in the first story, uh, Mr. Beeson, is that is the problem here seems to, from your original account, be that the police had these guys there and they did not make the arrest. For whatever the reason, whether or not they were really in a position to make that arrest, we can't say that for sure. We can't hold people accountable if cases aren't submitted to us, said Mary Moriarty. Once again, I want to repeat that. We cannot hold people accountable if cases aren't submitted to us. When cases are submitted to us, we have a sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. We will charge it and we'll hold the person accountable. It's because of these really low clearance rates of 2%, one of the reasons why we've started our youth auto theft initiative. According to Moriarty, her office started the initiative in June by partnering with police to identify repeat offenders and carjackings to auto theft, which, by the way, sounds like it actually has worked to a point because they've been able to identify this individual as being part of multiple carjackings around the metro. I don't have any patience for this. I mean, I, 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 let me let me let me back up really quick. I really do feel sorry for this family. I really do. I can't imagine how horrible that must feel. I can tell you how horrible it feels to be hit by a drunk driver and then be told, well, the sentencing guidelines dictate that there's not going to be any prison time for a guy that was drunk as a skunk who slammed into me and broke my back. That one stung. But I also can't demand when the the county prosecutor doesn't have the authority to walk into a courtroom and say, I'm going to throw this person in jail for four years to teach them a lesson. They don't have the authority to do that. So it's not, it's, it's as much as I want to get mad at that, there's not much I can do get mad at there because they're only following the freaking guidelines. And it doesn't sound like because of the amount of people, because the drinking and driving is such a huge freaking problem right now. The amount of people we'd be throwing into jails would be more than the jails could handle. That being said, I'd like to understand how how this went from, for Beeson, the police failed to Mary Moriarty. And once again, Mary Moriarty 
does seem to be doing what she can do. I can't charge a crime unless I have the case submitted. I'm charging these people with the laws that I am now dictated to charge them. What I mean, I, I guess that's the question I, I have for Beeson at this point is understanding your frustration. I mean, what what is the failure here? Are you saying that the, the state law should be mandatory life sentence should be the death sentence? Is that what you, you're saying? I mean, that would be the extreme side of it, that if you're, you're caught carjacking someone in Minnetonka and once again, micro macro. This person has been involved in a lot of other carjackings that have been going on. It's only when it happens when one area here, one specific area, all of a sudden the people are up in arms. Well, why weren't you up in arms when this stuff was happening before? I don't know if you want this guy to be executed. I don't know if you want a light mandatory life sentence with no food. I don't know if you want a daily beating. I don't know if you want to just be able to put this guy in the street and drive your car at him as fast as you can and teach him a lesson. I don't know. I don't know because what, all I can say is this, is that Mary Moriarty is following the laws that have been dictated to her that she has to follow now. And she's charged the people that – or she's charged the one person and likely second to charge the second person here once she gets the court cases. So I, I guess that's the part where if you're going to go down this path and you're all of a sudden going to forgive the officers who you just the day before in the CARE 11 story were insisting were the problem here, what is she not doing that you wish she was? And I think you have to ask that question because then we can hear that individual, whether that's a, well, I wish they would have harsher penalties. Well, that's not Mary Moriarty. That's the state. You can make that happen on the state level. That's talking to politicians. Oh, I want to have the instantaneous death sentence. Well, no one's going to put that into place outside of the most far-right Republicans and only for minorities. Let's just be honest about it. So that's not going to happen. So I, you know, if I, what I want to say is this, Mr. Beeson. I'm really sorry for what happened to your family. I'm really sorry there. You still live in an insanely safe town that does for a town of 53,000 people. You have very limited amount of crime out there. It's not exactly the nitty gritty, dirty city. It just is not. And that being said, don't turn this into politics because nothing will make people not care about you faster than the first thing out of your mouth is dang that Mary Moriarty. When the reality is your frustration is valid, you did identify one question of why things weren't done a certain way, but going after Moriarty here, what 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 else should she do? I mean, she I mean, like I said, are you expecting her to be Judge Dredd? Because I just don't think that that's going to happen. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Take a break. Come back. This is the Matt McNeil show right here on AM nine fifty. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. You know, and it's funny because you you look at all the outrage that's going on in Minnetonka. It's it's taken – there was a beating up in Duluth that happened that it's taken a shocking amount of time for this to get some traction. But frankly, from what I've seen, this is a far worse crime than what happened in Minnetonka. It just is, you know, wealthy white person suburbs, focus, focus, focus – black woman in Duluth, well, she probably deserved it. That's at least how I'm interpreting this, the, the coverage of this. Surveillance video from an incident at a West Duluth bar last week showed two men assaulting a black woman 
who was later taken to the hospital with injuries to her head, face, and, and, and her head and face, according to the Duluth Police Department. The department originally characterized it as a fight between two women who were separated by two men, a report that was refuted by the victim and her family in Facebook posts and a GoFundMe site. So once again, not really seeming to be too concerned about this, this, this case at all. You know, originally because of, you know, oh, she just, it was two women fighting. You know, if this, if this was, you know, know, frankly, if this was a white woman out in the Minnetonka, I imagine this would have been a very differently covered story. Michelle Folson wrote on her Facebook page that she was kicked in the head and face by two white men at the rustic bar late Tuesday night. She said she regained consciousness in the parking lot was walked to her daughter's workplace a few minutes away and was later taken to the hospital by a Mayo ambulance. She posted images of her face covered with cuts and scrapes, her white shirt streaked with blood and lenses of her glasses with red film. Folson said in a post that the bar cleaned up her blood, but the bartender wouldn't call the police even when she begged. The first public notification about the incident was posted Saturday on Facebook, an account that has been since clarified to include the assault. In a news release Monday, the police department said it responded to a call Wednesday at 12.15 and found the 39-year-old with injuries a few blocks from the bar. On Thursday last week, police requested the video of the bar, received access only two days later. They said the video shows a physical altercation between the victim and another woman before the two men who knew the other woman assaulted Folson. So she was telling the truth. The police department's original post drew anger from some of the hundreds of people who commented and shared the information asking for action and more accuracy in the details. On the Rustic Bar's Facebook page, there are calls for accountability as well. The investigation continues, according to the police department. No one's been charged. Folson did not return messages. And a member of the local chapter of the NAACP said that Folson wasn't talking to the media right now. And he GoFundMe for her mother. The, the daughter described the incident as a hate crime and a brutal attack. She said her mother's nose is broken on both sides. Her teeth went through her lip. She has two black eyes and her head is swollen. The amount of blood that leads me to believe that they, they, they left her for dead. On Monday morning, the daughter said in a message that she had just seen the video footage and was not yet ready to talk about it herself. Jeffrey Flynn, the bar's owner, if you're all questions to the police department. I think the first thing I can say is this. Rustic Bar is going to be this woman's bar. She's, there, there's, how do you allow a beating like this and then refuse to call the police? <laughs> you know, you, you're culpable if you serve a drunk. Going back to the drunk and driving. If you are a bar and you give too many drinks to a guy and they get behind a car, you're responsible. That is a fact. I can't even comprehend how much trouble you're in right now for having a woman beaten in your bar by two guys and then downplaying it and then refusing to call the police on the woman when it's clear that an assault happened in your bar. So it ain't going to be your bar too much longer, buddy. I just think that that's pretty clear at this point. Hour two, that's coming up next. Hour number two of the show here on your Tuesday, Matt and Brett and Patrick here. Hello, guys. I got to uh, put out here a – oh, it's the chair that's squeaking. No, that wasn't me doing the uh... – Oh, it's like – I was like, I mean, you come into my studio and all of a sudden it's, it's, it's you know, <laughs> time, time for, for the tuba section to start in. No, it's the chair that's making Here's the your present for me coming in oh, the studio. God. I have a very – I was doing with, with uh, Tom Robinson who is he's a longtime guy. This was back when I worked in Bemidji. <laughs> I I couldn't help myself, and he comes into the new the news, and he walks in the door, and he just looks, and I just said, "I'm sorry." <laughs> he just like, oh, no. <laughs> "I'm sorry, I'm sorry." <laughs> um, so lately, I guys, I have been getting 
kind of yeah, – you can tell I'm saying some things that are right because these right-wing fools keep coming after me and it's like, it's just your head and stuff. And I'm like, they don't come after you unless you're scaring them. And so I, I made this post and, and, and I'll stand by this post from earlier today. The same exact people who want an officer to be able to throw a 13-year-old kid to the ground and kneel on their back for the perception of uh, – just because of the perception of an attitude would be livid if the police officer had merely asked the YZ Nazis to see their identification. You know, it's just – it's like how dare you cross that line? But you can beat up a 13-year-old in a school. And that's kind of this dichotomy. And I've had a few people come back on this and they, they're kind of – they're demanding things from me. You need to interact with me. You need to answer my questions. And, I, and I, I want to make sure I put this out there. And this is up on my social media pages. You guys can, um, by all means, copy, share, and post this wherever you want to. Dear right-wing extremists, maga stooges, and trolls who demand I interact with them and answer their questions. No. I don't dance for you. I owe you nothing. This is going to sound harsh, but it's just a fact. On any given day, you rank at best somewhere in the range of 9 million to 10 million on the list of people who I prioritize. You're just not worth my time. I am not searching you out. You're coming to me looking for validation. I'm not going to give it to you. You are sad people. I would highly suggest you get offline and find a hobby. (sighs) I don't care. I don't, I don't sit on my line saying, ooh, is another troll coming after me? Block, 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 block. My life is a lot better. And if Elon Musk goes and charges us for Twitter, which I'll yeah, talk about. Yeah, what's up little, with that? We'll talk about that a little bit later on. If he starts charging us with Twitter, trust me, my troll quantities will dramatically decrease because I don't have trolls on Blue Sky. I don't have trolls up on Mastodon. I do not have trolls over on Threads, and I have a few trolls, but very little in the way of Facebook. And the best part about Facebook, when you block someone, it gives you the option of blocking any future profiles they'll create. So gone, as opposed to Twitter, which I can tell half these people are the same. Oh, yeah, you just create that. Oh, I'm I'm so-and-so too. Now I'm so-and-so three. Yeah, exactly. So uh, some election update here before we get to cool again from the Minnesota Reformer. First of all, from our friend Michael Broadcorp, who is following this. And we talked about this a little bit with him when he was with us on Friday about 52B. This is the special election. Ruth Richardson's seat, she's resigned. It was a fairly convincing win for the DFL last election. I doubt it's going to change anything there. Chris Whitfield, Jay Miller, Bianca Vern- Verning, and Cynthia Calais. Uh, all, I believe, have filed for the DFL. We now actually have a Republican. That Because we were talking about the fact that is a Republican even going to run? This special election comes up in December. It's late September at this point. Cynthia Longquist is a Republican. She filed her paperwork yesterday. And good for us. Charles Kuchlinitz. C-U-K-U-C-H-L-E-N-Z-T. Sounds uh, authoritative. He's the libertarian candidate. He filed today. Oh, the libertarians <laughs> are even putting up a candidate. Okay. <laughs> well, oh, we got to dismantle everything and give the taxpayer dollars back because no one wants anything. Interesting. There, there's no legalized cannabis candidates running now. Hmm. Wait a second here. Maybe, maybe they can make a call and get one of them in there. Or is uh, no? Don't. I, I can already see it. 
I'm a little still concerned about the Green Party, if you want to know the truth. I, I was a little bit, you know, back in 2016, there's still a lot of questions, man. There's still a lot of questions about that. Uh, so there's that. But uh, I mentioned earlier that um, there apparently this is, a, this is a Jim Schultz. You remember that Jim Schultz who lost the attorney general's race? The um, they apparently he has he's done some work here. Um, the the first political goal is to end the Democratic trifecta in the legislature and the government offices. Jim Soltz said that means flipping six seats in the Minnesota House Republican control in 2024 election. Senate seats in the governor's office won't be on the ballot till 2026. The group will look at candidates who can persuade independents and some Democratic leaning voters. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to you know basically leave and get away from the DFL's trifecta. Now I want to make sure we set the stage here for next year. Donald Trump will likely be the Republican nominee, and Amy Klobuchar will be on the ballot as well. So you're going to have to get a lot of people who are going to vote clearly against Donald Trump for Amy Klobuchar to then in turn completely change direction and do this. So my guess is going to be hey. I'm a moderate. <laughs> Get ready for a lot of that crap. And they're going to need a lot of those types of voters, too, because what, Biden won by seven points back in 2020? Mm-hmm. Imagine it be about the same in 24. That's a lot of people to flip. And you already have a few seats here that I in the metro area that Republicans currently hold, which I do not think they're going to hold next election. I do. What are you going to be, anti-free school lunch? Because <laughs> I'm anti-sick leave. I'm going to make marijuana legal again. Good luck with all that. Good luck with that. So here are the seats that they're they're kind of kind of eyeballing, and this is courtesy of Blue Stem Prairie, Mankato. That's um, uh, I guess it's uh, Luke Frederick, 18B DFL, second term House member, who won 61.13 percent uh, of the vote in 2022. So that's a pretty big win. Um. Yeah, that seems like a stretch. Yeah, sixty percent. That's like a sixty forty race. I actually took a look at this article. I think he mis he misspoke. It's the person across the river to the north who won by a much narrower margin. All right, that's Brand Jeff Brand eighteen A won fifty one oh four to forty eight point eight four. Still, he won. Uh, Schultz himself took fifty point one eight in the district. So I don't know if Schultz, Schultz must be kind of trying to position himself as the the great white hope. But hey, you know, so you're you're going to say very much on the forehead that you're against any kind of abortion laws? That's what you're going to be for? There's your first little good luck with that. Northfield, College Town Northfield, represented by Christy Purcell, 58A, serving her first term following retirement of DFL Tom Lippert. Uh, she won 54.48. So once again, that's a 10-point swing you're going to have to make there. Schultz was the top Republican vote getter with 47.57 in that district. So you're still underwater, uh, even with even with the pardon me, the charm and magnetism of Jim Schultz. <laughs> Another important thing to keep in mind: twenty two was supposed to be a very friendly Republican year. So oh, yeah. these are probably about as good a margins as the that, GOP can get in a lot of these races. Those your midterm races on whoever's occupying the yeah. White House usually helps, and it did. They did win the House in the U.S. House. But barely. And by the way, that's just blowing up in their face. Which oh, yeah. It's <laughs> just delicious. Uh, St. Cloud. Uh, this is a bit of a get, I think. Uh, Dan Wolgamont, 14B. They're going to target him because of his recent DWI plea. But that doesn't really – Matt Grossel had this. Matt Grossel had worse, really. Uh, I don't know if – it didn't really seem to affect him. 
Walgamont won with 51.8% of the vote. Senator Eric Putnam, Governor Walls, and Simon won the DFL side. But Schultz, Representative Tom Emmer, and GOP state auditor candidate Ryan Wilson also won in their perspective races. Trump lost to Biden 44% to 52% in the district. So um, it you, so you lost by eight, and that's the same matchup. I you know and with ninety one indictments ninety one, uh, and then the seat up in the Iron Range, which that that's that's what they're talking about. That's how he described it. Not sure which one he did. Clearly, Duluth is out of touch. There's no Duluth is as liberal. Duluth is makes makes Minneapolis blush. How progressive they are in that town sometimes. Uh, they must be talking about Representative Dave Lidensgard Lidensgard seven B. He, with 52.76% of the vote, Schultz was the second highest Republican vote getter in the district. Only incumbent Congressman Stauber got higher percentage votes in the contest. Jensen and Wilson received per, uh, pluralities over Walls and Blaha there. He received, though, uh, Liz, Liz Ligard got 51.10% 2020, his old district 6B was Trump territory, but Liz Ligard received more votes and a higher percentage in his own contest. So Trump... I you know it's I, I, it's going to be interesting. I don't I don't think that that's nearly like the western part of the state where the Trump you know love is absolute and undying out in like the western part of the state. I don't think the Iron Range is going to, it's going to sell as well if there's you know especially since two of these court cases will probably either be done by then and he'll be found guilty, especially that Washington D.C. one. I you know or in, and maybe even Atlanta too. So we'll have to see. But I, I just I, – I don't – where where are they going to get the seats? We talked about this when they came up with the new maps. Where are they getting these seats? Because those maps were not very good for the Republicans. And even in your best year, I think it was going to be a reach for you to win all the you – know, enough seats to get a majority. If you get one, you're going to have a one-seat majority. So you're only going to have that one-seat majority for two years because – Every single moderate Republican is going to get voted out in the next election cycle when they have to toe the line of the far-right Republicans in the party. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's interesting that these are all generally regional population centers. Really, none of the metro, I think, that you were listing. I don't think any of these were metro seats. I would think they would maybe target some of these exurban seats that are maybe occupied by DFLers. But, yeah, they're all going – generally rural or like, as you said, kind of like Mankato, Duluth. Lake Minnetonka is gone. I don't. Yeah. I think Lincoln Minnetonka is gone for them. Eden Prairie is gone for them. I'm starting to get the impression that St- Stillwater is get, starting to get pretty gone for them. Um, it's down by Woodbury is getting gone for them, and that used to be Republican territory there. I mean, the south side of the city, from from the entire loop, that's all gone. I mean, their only stronghold left is up in the northwestern part of the metro that runs the 94 corridor, and I don't know how well they're doing up there either. Because I said, once again, their whole argument is all these benefits that the Democrats just gave you, we're going to take away. I don't think that's a selling message, man. I just I just don't see it. So anyway, we haven't talked politics. It's nice every once in a while to jump back into that. Uh, Patrick Cooligan uh, joining you today. What's uh, well, up with the Minnesota reformer today? Yeah, so actually it kind of relates to what you're talking about, how Republicans might try to campaign against DFLers, as we 
we're talking about. The DFL implemented a lot of great programs during the past session, but Patrick in his column that he wrote talks about the challenge is going to be implementing many of these programs, especially come, like, let's say 2026 when we're implementing the new paid family leave program. If there are any problems with that, whether it's IT or tech issues, Republicans going to try to use that as a wedge issue to try to get back some of these voters. So mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about that and the challenges of implementing all these programs to make sure you don't get that backlash, which Republicans love to do, whether it's with Minsure or Obamacare, where they try to use those tech issues and say, the program's a failure, repeal it, get rid of it. And that's where uh, we're going to be talking about with Patrick about that and then a few other articles as well that they're working on. All right. Brett, with Patrick Cooligan, our friend from the Minnesota Reformer, right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And we are joined by Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, as we are going to be talking about some of the articles they've been working on, as well as a column as well that talks about implementing some of these great programs the DFL passed during this past session. Uh, The implementation phase is coming up next, and we'll be chatting about that. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show today. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So I want to start off talking about a column you recently wrote in the Minnesota Reformer over at minnesotareformer.com titled Minnesota Democrats Passed Their Program, Can They Make It Work? Because I I really like this column because obviously, as we saw during the past session for people who are uh, DFLers or lean left, uh, a lot of programs were passed that people are going to be very happy about, including, of course, legalizing cannabis, also having paid medical leave and many other programs. But your pro, but your column talks about another uh, very important aspect, and that is the fact that we have to implement all of these programs, which could be very challenging. And you even bring up the example of paid family leave and talking about how, let's say, in early 2026 on the eve of a midterm election, let's say we have a major IT breach or failure, or maybe the wrong taxes being imposed on the wrong people to pay f- as part of this payroll tax to pay for paid family leave. And there could be a lot of problems with these types of things. So this isn't the first time, of course, we could have programs implemented that ran into tech issues. So let's talk about the history and problems of implementing programs, even some of the most popular ones throughout history, because sometimes this can kind of snake bite, snake bite these very popular programs and and different things that get implemented over the years. It's that idea of, well, actually trying to get these things put in place that can really cause challenges. Yeah, government does uh, a lot of things um, that we don't even think about, and that means that they're succeeding. Uh, What I mean is you turn on the tap and water comes out, and uh, ideally uh, it's uh, it's, uh, clean drinking water and it doesn't poison you or the uh, the, the planes land safely. Um, there, there's a lot of things that go on that we don't even think about because they're, they're successful. Um, and there's a lot of complicated, difficult uh, government work that goes into to making that happen. And so these new programs are going to require uh, that kind of thankless um, uh, government work. Um, and, and it's even more challenging because once to, to stand up a program, to implement the program after you've created it at the legislature uh, is even more challenging. Um, and, and certainly we've seen, I think, you know, one of the more high profile examples would be Obamacare uh, and locally here, Mincher, uh, both had problems in their rollout. Um, and I recall at the time uh, there, there was some reporting about uh, previous big government programs like um, Medicare, for example, 
uh, which is the socialized insurance for the elderly um, and, and people with disabilities. And back in the, in the mid-60s when that was being implemented, uh, that had some problems in the rollout. Uh, so it's, it's not uncommon um, when government takes on a, a, a new task that it has, has uh, trouble um, and it just makes it all that much more important that we get the right people in place, the right systems in place, and uh, that this um, these programs roll out as seamlessly as possible and actually work well, um, because that will prove to the people of Minnesota that government can do things uh, can can uh, can do things to help all of us. Um, and in the case of paid leave, is is a great example. We uh, we expect people to go back to work right after they have a baby. Um, we we force people to um, to try to take care of uh, their aging parents while they're also working full time. And so this program is going to create uh, uh, some humanity around our work life um, by allowing us to step away with pay when we have these life events. Um, but it's complicated because uh, all of these employers uh, are, are going to either pay the payroll tax along with the employee or they can uh, do their own private plan or they can self-insure. Um, but the point is there's, there's a lot of work here on technology, uh, on the compliance, uh, and um, on the, the revenue piece of this. It's uh, it's pretty complicated, and uh, it, they have to do it right if they're going to earn the trust of uh, the people of Minnesota. Well, in the very scenario you laid you laid out, I think is very true because, uh, as you said, 2026 in the article is of course going to be a midterm election where we're going to have all 201 legislative seats up for re-election as well as the governor's mansion. And boy, yeah, if there's any sort of problems trying to implement this paid leave program or any of the other programs that were implemented this past year, all of a sudden Republicans very much have a wedge issue that they can use to their advantage. Much like I can even think back to like 2014 when they used something as kind of a well like the senate office building which was passed by the dfl and well republicans later used themselves that was built but they used that as a big wedge issue back in 2014 or even the implementation of minsure and the problems that that went through so this certainly does open the door for republicans to use this as a wedge issue if any of these programs and especially as you said with paid family leave and the complexities with it if something goes wrong uh, they have something to work with in those 2026 midterm elections Right. That law takes effect in the paid leave law takes effect in 26. Um, that gives the hopefully it gives the Department of uh, Employment and Economic Development, uh, which is going to oversee the program. It gives them time uh, to get it set up, to get it tested so that hopefully the rollout is, is clean. Uh, but that is a, a midterm. That's traditionally when Democrats have struggled. That's traditionally when the, the party that controls the White House has struggled. So if, if President Biden gets reelected, um, that that could be already uh, a tough year, um, but an important year here in Minnesota uh, with all 201 seats up and uh, the constitutional offices. It's possible to be, you know, if, if Governor Walz decides not to run again, you have an open uh, governor's seat. Uh, so it's really important that that, that rollout be uh, done, uh, done well and that people can start enjoying the benefits of that paid leave law uh, going into that 26th election. Otherwise, 
like you said, there's a wedge issue. Uh, Republicans, um, you know, if the economy's down or what have you, Republicans could could sweep back into office. Um, we do have the trifecta here, uh, meaning the the DFL does, um, but that can change. It's, it's a one seat majority in the Senate. It's a narrow majority in the House. Uh, they could easily come in and and just reverse all of those gains that were made during this legislative session. Well, you had a chance to speak with some people who might be involved with implementing some of the programs that were passed during this past year. And let's talk about some of the challenges that they're going to be facing. And this is something I guess I didn't really think about until, well, you brought it up in the article. And that is, well, the challenge of finding workers to implement these programs that are, well, actually qualified and more than just kind of the typical political hacks that you know, might be appointed in other states where we're saying, well, let's just bring in this guy's buddy from the legislature because, well, it's he's somebody's brother and we want to bring him in and run the program. You know, the challenge is actually trying to find those qualified workers and then uh, making sure you keep them as well, because as I understand, there's also a challenge uh, with some of these managerial roles and finding people who are well not necessarily approaching retirement age since that could be an issue right now. So I guess overall there there are going to be some problems trying to find workers to help implement a lot of these uh, programs too. Yeah, if you think about the Office of Cannabis Management, you've got, I mean, that's, that's a brand new office. You've got uh, HR and finance. Uh, you've got, uh, uh, there's a scientific aspect to it uh, because all the product really needs to be tested. Uh, you're going to have... Um, inspections, uh, compliance, uh, regulatory, enforcement, uh, all kinds of different jobs. We are at full employment, uh, so there's just not uh, a whole lot of people out there uh, who are looking for work um, and can't find it. Uh, You you also have a fierce competition, especially in the management ranks from from the private sector. You have all these these Fortune 500 companies here, and then a lot of these skills, management management skills are transferable, so they could go work uh, probably for for more money. Uh, You have the existing workforce in state government is aging. Uh, A lot of them are are approaching retirement. So there's a lot of challenges there to find uh, good people. Just, I mean, state governments like other employers, except in some ways it's even harder because they can't pay uh, quite as much. I think the, the benefits package traditionally has been very good, but it's not quite as good as it once was relative to the private sector. Um, and, and then there's just the, the difficulties of, of working in, in government. It's, there's so much scrutiny from, from the legislature, from the press, the public, and you're working in this giant bureaucratic system where you, you can't always be as nimble as you want to be because there are specific sets of rules which are there for good reason. Um, it's to prevent waste and fraud and duplication and everything else. Um, but the, the public then will get impatient and say, well, why aren't we moving quicker? Well, it's because we have these rules and if we move too fast, we could wind up um, in, in a situation where uh, we've somebody taking advantage of, uh, of a government program like the Feeding Our Future scandal, for instance, where they, they move very quickly and uh, too quickly and, and without enough due diligence. And it led to uh, what appears to be significant fraud. So those are some of the unique challenges of working in government. And it, it creates um, it, it's a it's a difficult environment to work in. And I don't think we always appreciate that enough. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that because oftentimes we we hear so much anti-government rhetoric, especially over the past uh, few decades or so, and usually government workers, not not necessarily the ones who are political appointees, but kind of the rank and file, they're usually just kind of keeping their head down and doing the work and uh, really not pushing back on a lot of that anti-government rhetoric, even though that's certainly out there and probably not helping the situation either. Yeah, I mean, and and I to a certain extent, I don't think that we want uh, government to be out there propagandizing for itself. Um, but um, uh, on the other hand, um, it, it really has been just decades of anti-government rhetoric backed by billions of dollars. I mean, think about you know Fox News. I mean, every single night, um, just hammering um, the public sector, uh, and and there's almost no response. Um, either because, um, well, there's all kinds of reasons, um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's a sort of one-sided debate where, um, we always hear about the problems in government. We rarely hear about its successes, which, um, are uh, really daily. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can check out more of that column, by the way, over at minnesotareformer.com, again titled, Minnesota Democrats Passed Their Program, Can They Make It Work? Again, minnesotareformer.com, because as you brought up, uh, a lot of times, yeah, you don't hear about these successes. They kind of go unreported and under the radar, but uh, they do occur out there and worth paying attention to. So again, I read the column over at minnesotareformer.com. I briefly wanted to touch on two other uh, news stories you guys are working on over at The Reformer, and one has to do with People who are now working from home, because during the pandemic, uh, the number of people working at home skyrocketed. It's from from 6.4% of workers in 2019 to now 20.9% in 2021. Of course, that has led to, now that we're kind of in the post-pandemic period, uh, lots of uh, managers, whether in private companies or even government companies, trying to get people to return to the office. So that has created some challenges. But did anything jump out at you with these numbers in terms of, well, how many people are now still staying at home and and still working for home and kind of uh, how Minnesota compares a little bit to the rest of the country in that regard? Yeah, well, we uh, have... um higher percentage of uh, college graduates and doing the kinds of office work where people can work at home. And we also have this low unemployment rate. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's given workers uh, pretty uh, some leverage. Um, and, and a lot of workers think that this is a, it's like basically a perk that's now um, kind of a, a must have. They're not going to negotiate on that. Um, and primarily I, I presume people love not having the commute um you know even if you live in one of the closer suburbs you you get back an hour of your day and and so i think that's i think managers um and even civic leaders who have called on you know want people back back in the downtowns uh, they're going to have they're going to struggle that so that's going to be an uphill battle getting people back even three days a week um and, and i think that's uh it's something that that civic leaders, government leaders, really uh, need to, to start incorporating um, into uh, how they view the the situation. Uh, it's not things are not going to return to what they were, mm-hmm. and so you've got to start rethinking how we use all this uh, office space in particular, because you're going to see sky high office vacancies, um, and and there's a whole bunch of knockoff effects. But they also need to consider 
because if the value of the buildings goes down, now you could see uh, higher uh, residential property taxes and or cuts to, to the municipal services. So you, they really have to rethink what happens to these downtowns and start making better use of the space because we're just not going to get back to a situation where you know, hundreds of thousands of people are coming into the office five days a week and spending money at uh, restaurants and gift shops and so forth. That's not coming back. And so if you're a person in government and public policy and urban policy, you really need to start thinking about what we're going to do uh, to transform those spaces. And the other uh, article briefly wanted to touch on has to do with, uh, well, it's titled, Report Identifies Major Gaps in Minneapolis Police Department's Response to Domestic Violence. As recently, the Global Rights for Women recently released its own report on the Minnesota Department, Minnesota Police Department's response to domestic violence calls. This, of course, comes just after that uh, DOJ report that was just released as well. And one of the, at least, statistics that kind of jumped out at me was that, uh, well, I'll just quote it right here. It says, when abusers fled the scene before the Minneapolis police arrived, officers and follow-up investigators often did not attempt to locate the abusers, leaving victims vulnerable to future violence. In fact, they showed that only three of 55 gone-on arrival cases examined during the analysis resulted in a conviction of any time, of any kind, only three out of 55. So, again, more issues that we've been seeing with the MPD uh, in dealing with some of these types of cases. I know they also had some issues as well in, in this report talking about mistreatment of people of color. But uh, I'm curious how Minneapolis kind of compares maybe to other departments around the country. Are they running into these types of other issues as well? Because uh, this certainly uh, probably doesn't look very good in uh, when in addition to that DOJ report we had as well about the MPD that was released earlier this year. Yeah, unfortunately, um, historically, uh, police departments um, are have been um, ineffective um, and in some cases, I think, apathetic about uh, domestic violence. Um, I think there's a lot of misogyny that's kind of baked into that. Um, I mean, you don't have to go that far back um, to, to a place where um, domestic violence was considered um, a private matter. Um, and so I think, you know, we've made progress there, um, but then you get to the, the problem of, the, the victim um, not wanting to uh, uh, testify um, or press charges. Um, and so I think there's, again, there's some incremental progress there where um, the, the idea is that that, um, that shouldn't matter and um, we should be prosecuting anyway. But clearly there's still uh, some huge gaps here um, with MPD in particular uh, where they, um, as, as you point out, um, they don't seem to be making a uh, huge investigative effort in these cases where the the abuser, as long as they're not in the uh, in the domicile, um, they seem to be free of uh, the threat of prosecution. That that seems like a big problem. Well, you can read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com, again titled, Report Identifies Major Gaps in MPD's Response to Domestic Violence. We have been speaking with Patrick Hulican, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. We are unfortunately just about out of time for today, but do make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. 
Always a pleasure, Brett. Thank you. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. I want to explain to people why there's these strikes that are starting to come on out here. And and, and, and this whole movement towards better wages, this workers' movement that's gone out there and, and been going on, I, I – I've talked many times and I tried – by the way, I tried to find that note I got from that woman who was the CFO of that company. And if you don't remember, this was years ago and I don't have it. At least I couldn't find it. She wrote me a letter that basically talked about her time with the company and that she started there in the company in the 1970s. And she was just an office person at that point and eventually worked her way up into the finance department, eventually became the CFO of the company, worked with the original owner of the company. They were a modest company. They were a manufacturer. They had, floor, they had, a, they had a, um, um, a manufacturing floor and they had the front office. And the, the, the company had like 100 employees. Back in the 70s, it was, it was like 100 employees. And the owner of the company was a guy – he founded the company himself. He was, a, he was a guy there. And she said that back then – and it was something we talked about on the show, and this is what prompted her to write me the letter, was back then the executives made five, six, seven, eight times as much as maybe the, the standard working person on the floor. But it wasn't this extraordinary amount. It, was, it wasn't like today where it's 300 times what the average worker at the company makes – that's what the executives are making. It was something reasonable. And to get that money back in the 70s and the 80s, that executive generally worked, you know, was the first one into the office, was the last one going home, worked on Saturday, pretty much a full day, worked half the Sundays for sure. Most of their vacations were working vacations. They, 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 they had to earn that money because they saw their workers saw them. Their workers saw what they were doing. And she worked with him. She was there when he retired. His son took over. And initially for the first few years after that, that things went well until the, the original owner, the dad, passed away. And it was very sad. But about six months after the company you – know, after this guy took over and dad was gone, the, the company started making some really big changes – Changes which she basically brought up alarming concerns. They were laying off people. The mentality was all of a sudden the the sun changed and all of a sudden it was these workers aren't working as hard as they need to. We need to cut a few of them, let them know that their jobs are like that. You know, they they can go away at any time. They He cut bonuses. He cut pay raises. Meanwhile, all the money he was saving was basically going to his payroll, his salary – he brought in a bunch of his buddies to work there, many of whom, she said, were unqualified for the jobs that they were holding, but they were his friends. They, they hardly came into the office at all. They only came in. He, she, she talked about trying to call him one time because there was an emergency at the office, and he said he was just going to be at home 
And when she finally got in touch with him, he was in Vegas. And she's like, what are you doing in Vegas? She goes, well, I'm just taking a vacation. I need a vacation. She goes, you didn't you, you got to let us know when you're doing this. We need you here now. And apparently was all upset because, you know, yeah, he, he this wasn't about running the company anymore. It was about using the company as a credit card. And, you know, he was getting paid an astonishing amount of money. They cut the staff down to minimal staff. They, they, they sold out some of their equipment. And she was actually – she was retiring. Um, and when she was retiring, she was like, I don't think that this company is going to survive another year. And I And she did actually get back in touch with me later and said that they indeed – they they ended up having to sell the company because they couldn't keep it open anymore because not because costs or anything but because of greed the son drove the company into the ground there was this movement in corporate america in the 1980s that changed how we that how how companies work and I say this not because I'm trying to sound how to do it. I'm just saying my major in college was business at William Penn. And so I, I, I kind of get business pretty well. I can understand and I can see where the mistakes are made and, and stuff like this. And the, 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 mis, the mistake that we made, the, the thing that is I call the age of greed was something very simple. That the executive class at these companies created a tier where they were the most important people at the company. The owner didn't matter. The shareholders didn't matter. The employees didn't matter. The customers didn't matter. The suppliers didn't matter. None of it mattered. They were the most important thing. And they got their obscene paychecks. And that is where this thing started going crazy. This is why we have executives at corporations today who are making 50, 60, 200 times more than the average worker that they employ, which is a you you're, can't you can't do that. We all see it. We all see what you're doing. And no, I don't care what company you're in. Your employees don't look at you and say, you're 200 times better than the average worker. Bull crud. We see you guys ladling the money of the companies into your own mouths, and that's what it is. That's what it is. You're basically just using these as your these companies as they exist for you. Back when the, the, the banking collapsed back in uh, 2008, when that happened, what was the op- it was it, the, the entire thing? The, the the executives were incensed that their poor management of their businesses absolutely torpedoed the companies that they had worked for. But they were most upset with the fact that they weren't going to get their massive Christmas bonuses that they had promised themselves, which they felt that they were owed, even though that they failed on a spectacular level, which was unbelievable. That was that was that was that whole thing with W's, you know, uh, you know, um, Treasury Secretary. He's like, I need a whole bunch of money. You can't ask where it goes. You can't ask for any receipts. That's all it was was basically paying off these executives and giving them massive payouts for failing spectacularly. And it hasn't changed in this country right now. There are plenty of places where the state really mistreats its own people 
and make sure that the salary that, that people could get paid seven, eight dollars an hour, and that's that they say that that's a good wage. That's a good wage. That they could get paid twelve dollars an hour to go work out in 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 hazardous farm conditions in the heat, and that's a good living wage. That that's what they honestly think. COVID changed a lot of things. COVID was very interesting because I remember when people wanted people to come back to work. I'll never forget the hamburger restaurant in town who basically put out the argument that, well, if someone's willing to come work for me and give me a 1,000% extra effort, I'll give them a 20% raise. And when people put it out, I was like, wait a second, you expect people to work a thousand times harder and all you're going to give them is 20%? That's when the guy wiped out all of his, his social media accounts. Because they couldn't even, they don't even realize how abusive they have been just by their argument that I deserve everything and the workers deserve nothing. They wouldn't have anything without the workers. They wouldn't. And don't get me wrong, you always have the option of quitting your job and moving on. But the reality is, is we are getting closer and closer to this world, which used to exist in the 1880s, 1890s, where there's, in many places, there aren't any other jobs. You're stuck there working for these garbage wages. While that person lives on a golf course making 400 times more than you, who never shows up for the office, is always out golfing or on a vacation and acting like basically you're the bene- they're, they're being benevolent because they allow you to be around them. Former President Obama backed the United Auto Workers strike on Saturday, telling automakers that it's time to do right by workers. Fourteen years ago, with the big three automakers were struggling to stay afloat, my administration and the American people stepped in to support them. So did the auto workers and the UAW who sacrificed pay and benefits to help get these companies back on their feet. Now that our car makers are moving into a robust profits, it's time to do the right things by those same workers so the industry can emerge more unified and competitive than ever. Reminder, it was always when they were in trouble, it's, we need your help. We need you to make cuts. We need to take sacrifices. And we did. And now that they're making money, all of a sudden, you're a bunch of greedy workers that don't deserve anything. We're the geniuses that did it all. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. John Stewart has a very good speech about this. When they fail, they need corporate. They need they need the government to help prop them up because that's not their fault. That's that's nothing they did. When they succeed, then they just keep all the profits and they don't have to have anyone else. And if you base, if you dare tell them, why don't you share some of those profits with your employees? Well, that's socialism. Well, no, your all you companies are socialism. All of you are. It is. You guys just love when you guys fail because of your own arrogance, bad management, circumstances outside of your control. You always expect the taxpayers to help bail you out. Thanks, guys. But then when it's time for you to pay back, it's those moochers don't deserve anything. I'm 100% wrong with the UAW. I'll also mention Friday union officials announced workers at Hormel plant voted overwhelmingly to reject a final law from the Austin, Minnesota company. Frankly, I would like to see a law in this country that says this, that if you are an executive, I'm not talking about the owner of the company, I'm talking about a chief executive, that you cannot make more than, I'll even make it obscene, 50 times more than the average worker of your company. You're still going to live in the biggest house in the neighborhood. You're still going to have the, the vacation property. You're still going to have the car. But it's this obscene 300, 400 times amount, and then acting like you are somehow worth it, 
Oh, please, you arrogant jackasses. You're not. You just fixed the system so basically you can ladle the money into your mouth at this, at whenever you want it at the expense of everyone else. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Take a break. Come on back. I'll get to Elon Musk saying I'm going to charge for Twitter. Okay, good luck. Bye. <laughs> it's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. Well, in the latest attempt to kill Twitter, Elon Musk has possibly come on the idea that might actually do it. Uh, he uh, discussed his plans for Twitter. He says it's now called X. I'm going to still call it Twitter. He says the social media network is moving towards having a small monthly payment for use of the system in order to combat vast armies of bots. Bye. I am not paying a billionaire to use a social media system, which is 80% absolute freaking garbage and only 20% stuff that I want to see. End of story. I'm not going to do that. Musk did not say how much the new plan would cost users on the social media or what other features would or would not be included in payment for the lowest tier. During the live stream, Musk divulged the new metrics of X saying – Twitter – saying that the 550 million monthly users who generate 100 million to 200 million posts a day. Now, Twitter used to say the average monetizable daily average was only 229 million, so it's not quite sure where he's getting that number from because I don't think it's expanded per se. And if it has, it's mostly been it's been bots. Um, the meeting uh, he basically his meeting with Netanyahu of all people uh, was uh, followed by criticism of Musk by civil rights groups over his amplification of bigotry on social networks, including anti-Semitic accounts, content, and conspiracies. In recent weeks, Musk has threatened to sue the Anti-Defamation League, a Jewish-led organization, alleging that they tried to kill his social network. Oh, no, you're killing it yourself. Musk has blamed ADL rather than his own business decisions for a 60% drop in revenue. If uh, that's, that's got to be that. No, that's got to be much worse. He says he's had no choice but to file the defamation lawsuit. Funny story, though. Musk or X-Corp has not yet filed any known lawsuit against the Anti-Defamation League and did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Uh, if this comes down to a charge, I mean, I have I have seen a lot of people I know leave Twitter permanently. If this comes down to you need to pay a billionaire to have access to it, bon voyage, Facebook. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Blue Sky. You can find me on Mastodon. You can find me... As well over on threads, but you will not follow me on Twitter. Uh, Native Roots Radio is up next. Have a good one. We're back tomorrow. Till then, see ya.